You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. We believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. That means that when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading is from Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 9 to chapter 9, verse 12. It can be found on page 590 of the Black Bibles. We are reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Please follow along and it will also be displayed on the screen. All this I have seen, applying my mind to all the work that is done under the sun, at a time when one person has authority over another to his harm. In such circumstances, I saw the wicked buried. They came and went from the holy place, and they were praised in the city where they did those things. This too is futile. Because the sentence against an evil act is not carried out quickly, the heart of people is filled with the desire to commit evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, I also know that it will go well with God-fearing people, for they are reverent before him. However, it will not go well with the wicked, and they will not lengthen their days like a shadow, for they are not reverent before God. There is a futility that is done on the earth, There are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve, and there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. I say that this too is futile. So I commended enjoyment because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink, and enjoy himself, for this will accompany him in his labor during the days of his life that God gives him under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom, and to observe the activity that is done on the earth, even though one's eyes do not close in sleep day or night. I observed all the work of God and concluded that a person is unable to discover the work that is done under the sun. Even though a person labors hard to explore it, he cannot find it. Even if a wise person claims to know it, he is unable to discover it. Indeed, I took all this to heart and explained it all. The righteous, the wise, and their works are in God's hands. People don't know whether to expect love or hate. Everything lies ahead of them. Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good and the bad, for the clean and the unclean, for the one who sacrifices and the one who does not sacrifice. As it is for the good, so also it is for the sinner. As it is for the one who takes an oath, so also for the one who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. There is one fate for everyone. In addition, the hearts of people are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. After that, they go to the dead. But there is a hope for whoever is joined with all the living, since a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead don't know anything. 
There is no longer a reward for them because the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their envy have already disappeared, and there is no longer a portion for them in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with pleasure, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and never let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun, all your fleeting days. For that is your portion in life and your struggle under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength, because there is no work, planning, knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, or bread to the wise, or riches to the discerning, or favour to the skilful. Rather, time and chance happen to all of them. For certainly no one knows his time, like fish caught in a cruel net, or like birds caught in a trap. So people are trapped in an evil time as it suddenly falls on them. That is some Bible reading, isn't it? <laughs> Read it closely. Mm. It's hard going. Anyway, let's pray and ask God to help us. Almighty God and loving Father, may the words I speak now be your words from your word in Scripture. May you graft them into our hearts and may you work in us so as to bring forth in us faith in Christ and the fruit of good works. We pray this for the honour and praise of your name and your son's name through whom we pray. Amen. Well, before we start today, I need to explain what I'm up to um, and what I'm doing. You might remember uh, the first talk on Ecclesiastes. Some of you weren't here, but those of you who were, I introduced the book. I talked about how it should be approached and how it should be interpreted. And one of the things that I noted is that there may not be a set structure to the book. Uh, however, there are key themes and key ideas, I think, and that's where we're going today. I am going to take up what I think are some key themes and ideas within the book and see what the author has to say about them. So with those preliminaries done, let's get underway, and I would encourage you to have your Bibles open. Let's orient ourselves as to where we were by heading back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. So in your Bibles, flip to there. Do you remember that much-repeated general thesis of the book? It's there in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. And do you remember what I said then? I said the key word in this, in this sentence is the word our, translates, our version translates, absolute futility. And the Hebrew word that is behind that word has a broad range of meanings. And when you link that to the sentiment that's expressed in the following verse 3, you get a very dark picture. I'm not hiding anything from you. It is dark. It is a dark picture that is repeated time after time after time throughout the book. And the impression you get when you read it is this. All is untrustworthy, enigmatic, insubstantial, fruitless, or unable to be depended on. That's not, that, that's not very glowing, is it? Not very happy. 
Uh, and do you know what? By all, he means all. All earthly endeavours, he thinks, all human experiences are put under the spotlight by him and they are reviewed realistically. And let me tell you that God has caused this book to be incorporated, sorry, this book of Ecclesiastes to be incorporated into his book, the Bible, because God thinks it's important to understand what this writer is saying. All are put under the spotlight, all are viewed realistically. Observation, he says, proves the thesis. Experience proves the thesis. Participation in the world proves it. Honest reflection proves it. Absolute futility, absolute futility, everything is futile. So there's the thesis. Now, what I want you to do with me today is a bit more following him around in his world, in our world. Let's look over his shoulder as he examines various aspects of life. And our first focus today is going to be life in general. Our primary passage is going to be the one we just read, chapter 8, verse 9 through to 9, verse 12. We had it read to us. Let's go with our apparently royal friend. He apparently seems to be someone of royalty. And let's look at what he says and at the implications. Now, the first thing to notice is the focus. So we're up now in your notes to, if you've got notes, chapter 8, verse 8, and through to 9, verse 12. This is a passage about life in general. And it concentrates on one particular aspect of life, life's injustices. Look at verse 10. Here he taps into the fact that burial is a common, honourable treatment to give someone. However, he notes that even the wicked are buried. Not only that, they came and went from the holy place. That is, they may have been religious people. They still got buried. Can you hear what he's saying? And they were praised in the cities for what they did in their wickedness. How does that go? Can can you hear what he's saying? He knows that in theory all things will be well with those who fear God and not well if you're someone who does not fear God. You're the wicked. But when he looks out on the world and he goes to funerals and observes funerals, he notes something else. Even the wicked are praised and lauded at their death. Now look back at verse 12. He observes that sometimes sinners who do evil a hundred times prolong their lives. That is, they're not cut short, but sometimes lengthened. And this is so often the way the world functions, is it not? You can't hide from this. If you're brutally honest, face it. Verse 13 indicates that this writer knows that it will not go well with the wicked because they don't fear God. He knows that's the theory. But there's a tension between what he sees and what he knows. What he seems to be saying is that delayed justice doesn't seem to act like like a deterrent. In other words, if it happens after you die that you get judged, well, what use is that? He makes the point that delayed justice, whether it's now or later, is almost no justice at all. Delayed justice doesn't act as a deterrent for people. Look at verse 11 and listen to what he says. Because the sentence against an evil act is not carried out quickly, the heart of people is filled with the desire to commit evil. In other words, if no one goes around punishing you, you will do it. I know you will, because it's probably part of your driving habits as well, isn't it? If there's no police around, you can put your foot on the accelerator. In other words, because judgment's not executed speedily, the human heart just pushes on with evil until someone puts the brakes on. Now look at verses 12 and 13. 
The writer's aware of God. He knows that ultimately the righteous will be secure because God is a good God and God's over all the world. By faith he knows the perilous instability of the wicked as it's painted in places such as Psalm 1, verses 4 to 6, Psalm 49, verses 13 to 15, and Psalm 73. However, do you know what happens? When he looks honestly at life, he finds it offensive. Because there's a reversal of what he knows or thinks should happen. Look and listen to him stated. Verse 14 of this chapter that we're looking at. There is a futility done on the earth. There are righteous people who get what what the actions of the wicked deserve. And then there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. I say this is too. This too is futile. Can you hear what he's saying? He's saying this seems so wrong. But what can you do? What can you say? Maybe all you can do is just press on with life. So he comes to verse 15. Look at it there. Listen to it. He says, So I commended enjoyment because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink and enjoy himself, herself. For this will accompany him in his labour during the days of his life, of the life that the Lord God gives him under the sun. It's dark, isn't it? Here's my more colloquial paraphrase. This is an Andrew Reid special, okay? Here we go. What the hell? In the face of such enigmas and vanity, enjoy life. Realise that as much as you try to make sense of it, it's beyond you. It doesn't make sense, no matter how hard you try and understand it. Even the wisest person on earth who say say that they know the secret is deluding themselves. There you are, you can have that. That's my paraphrase. But let's move on to chapter 9. Our writer is unrelenting. Have a look, chapter 9, verse 1. In the end he says that it's all in God's hand. Now look at verses 2 and 3 in chapter 9. He reflects on the fact that death hangs on over life and that being so, there's one good thing about life in general. It's not death. <laughs> Being alive may seem like vanity, but it's sure better than being dead. (laughs) Look at verse 4, it says, But there is hope for whoever is joined with all the living, since a live dog is better than a dead lion. (sighs) It is hard, isn't it, what he's saying? Let me paraphrase. Where there's life, there's hope. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Now look at verse 5 in that same chapter. Our writer tells us that the reason for it is better being alive than dead is that a live person can still think, even if it's only about their impending death. Can you see it there? Nine, Chapter 9, verse 5a. For the living know that they will die, but the dead, they don't know anything. Then he goes on, he observes that being alive does have some other advantages uh, over, uh, other than being an opportunity to think about the meaning of life. It can actually be enjoyable. Look at verse 7 and following. Our writer's point is that if death is the inevitable end, why not enjoy life to the fullest? And there's lots of things to joy, enjoy, isn't there? Eating bread with joy. Drinking wine 
with a merry heart. And these are all things that God approves of, funnily enough. Good clothing, a spouse that you love. They're things that God quite happy with. However, then he comes back at us and he urges us to remember again. After all, death puts them all under the microscope. Look at verse 10. Sheol is the end, the place of darkness and emptiness. So let's see if we can summarise what we've learned so far in these passages. Our writer is speaking very frankly to us. And he's saying to us, look, let me, let me be honest with you. This, I think, this book, Ecclesiastes, is one of the most raw, honest books in the Bible, I think. It's very frank. He says to us, look, when I examine life, I observe that humans are not rewarded according to their moral behaviour sometimes. I observe that they, that they suffer a common fate. God's ways, therefore, are somewhat inscrutable or unknowable. Happiness is incidental and can only be enjoyed, and therefore, but it can be enjoyed gratefully. Friends, I have not heard many people tougher than this man. But he is honest and it's pretty tough stuff. But let's press on. Let's see what else we can find in Ecclesiastes. Elsewhere. With that in mind, come with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Here's another observation about life in general. But I want to warn you, it's even more negative. You think we've been doing badly up until now. Just wait for this one. He says, again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. And they have none to comfort them. So I commended the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who's never yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Can you hear what this man is saying? And can you be as honest with him as he is being with you and with yourself? In utter frustration, he is saying that there is one way around the enigmas and confusions of life as it presents itself. What is that? Don't enter it. <laughs> Stop before you're born. Now, in your outline, I've put some other references to look at on your own if you've got the guts to do it. Let me turn, let, now let's turn to our author and his view of work. And when I say work, what I mean is um, effort, toil, achievement, success, ambition, wealth, honour, and the like, all those things that go with, hopefully, with work. In other words, work and all the things that come with it. And I want you to read with me Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 18 to 23. I hated all my work that I laboured at under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he'll be, or she will be, wise or a fool. Yet he will take, or she will take over all my work that I laboured at skilfully under the sun. 
that too is futile. So, so I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I'd laboured at under the sun. When there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it, surely that too is futile and a great wrong. For what does a person gain with all his work, all his effort that he labours at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is futile. If you're a Christian here tonight, let me address you as sister, brother in Christ. If you're not, let me address you as someone who is exploring perhaps Christian faith. I want you to listen to this man. Throughout history, people of all cultures have searched to find meaning in work. And uh, the massive mass of faces here are Asian. And the weight is heavier on you, I think, than many on earth. <laughs> I've lived in parts of Asia and worked in those contexts. I know all about it. And, uh, uh, but look at what he says. So I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I'd laboured at under the sun. When there's a person whose work has done was done with wisdom, knowledge and skill, uh, he must give his portion to a person who's not worked at it at all. This too is futile and a great wrong. For what does a person get with all his work, her work, and all their labours that they labour at under the sun? For all their days are filled with grief, and their occupation is sorrowful. Even at night their mind does not rest. This too is futile. Friends, I want you to listen to this man. I think he is one of the most ruthless writers I have ever read in his honesty. But listen to him. He examines, he reports, and what he finds is nothing. There's no fulfilment, he says, in hard work. No fulfilment in high attainment. In fact, the very success you gain will often accentuate the collapse that will come. Toil and, and achievement are in the end futile and all that money into that degree, all that time hard at work, those late nights, futile. Now, I do not tell your parents that I told you this. But let's move on. Chapter 4, verses 4 to 8. Our wise man says, I saw a labourer and all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. That is negative, isn't it? <laughs> this too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. The fool folds his arms, consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort in a pursuit of the wind. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There's a person without a companion, without even a son or a brother, and though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are not content with riches. Can you hear that? A person who doesn't have relationships but works so hard. Who am I struggling for, he asks. I, I, I've got no one to give it to. 
and depriving myself of good things. This too is a futile, is futile and a miserable task. I, I have not heard philosophers as scathing as this. They are dark words. They are a picture of what, I, what the Bible calls the fall of humans at work. The selfish arrogance that lay behind the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden continues on in our workplaces. Here, there is a drive to be better, bigger, richer, and whatever other words you want to add. In fact, that competitive instinct that we have been stirred up toward, that urge for us to be better than our neighbour, is such that it often becomes obsessive for us. It produces the sad loneliness of the workaholic who will leave everything they have laboured to for no one. If you haven't seen it yet, you will. Perhaps even amongst those people that you go to university with or work with. It will happen. So what do we do? What do we do? Do we just retire from working? Well, no, that's no use either. Leisure is equally useless. I'm sorry, because I saw some people adding to the first conclusion, sorry, nodding to the first conclusion, and then I just dropped a bomb on them. (laughs) That's what I think verse 5 means here. The fool folds his arms, consumes his own flesh. (laughs) And so the answer is perhaps that the best we can do is reach a balance in life. That's what verse 6 is about. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit after the wind. How might we summarise what our writer is saying? My summary is this. That he is saying that toil and ambition are in the end fruitless. They end nowhere. In and of themselves, those things will not give you meaning either. The best you can expect in life is a life lived in balance, if you can manage it. And I put some Bible references in your notes for those. So that we have now checked out our writer's perspective on life in general. And I, I, let me tell you, I find this sermon very hard because I'm telling you something that is very brutal. But this guy is wanting to, you to face it. And that, do you know what that means? God is wanting you to do the searching as well. For it's God who caused these scriptures to be inspired. But we've reached our writer's perspective on life in general. We've seen what he thinks of work. Now let's turn to wisdom and folly. To do this, I want to turn to some of the earliest words of our author. I want you to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Flip back, verses 12 to 18. He says this, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I've seen all things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile a pursuit of the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. And so I said to myself, see, I've amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me. And let me tell you, this man had done exactly what he said. 
If this is Solomon, as we expect, as we suspect it is, he was an incredibly rich man with great resources. I applied my mind to no wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly, and I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow, as you can tell by what he writes. As knowledge increases, grief increases. So here our author author experiments with wisdom. He enters upon a full-blown scientific experiment. His aim to look at everything that's under the sun. Preliminary verdict given verses 13 to 15, which is what I just read. So where's our wise man got to? He has tested the benefits of learning and intellectual prowess. But his conclusion is that increased wisdom simply means increased awareness of life's enigmas. Therefore, in the end, knowledge can, that knowledge can only be a burden. The more you know, the more it hurts. Sure, wisdom is better than folly, there's no doubt about that. But wise people and fools end up in the same place, under the ground. So what advantage has wisdom brought you? Surely it's just made your life more burdensome. And death doesn't offer any condolences for you. Ah, there might be one other way ahead. Pleasure. A writer determines to give it a shot as well. Look at him outline his research, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I said to myself, go ahead. Go ahead, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. It turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it's madness. And about pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind the pull of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to grasp folly until I could see what is good for people to do under the sun during the few days of their life. I increased my achievements. I built houses. I planted vineyards. The stories of what Solomon was able to accomplish, if if it is Solomon, are enormous. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. He had his own sort of botanic gardens, as it were. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I owned livestock, large flocks and herds, more than all who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself in the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. And so I became great. And I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasures, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for my struggles. (laughs) When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I laboured to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit after wind. That is a grasping after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Here our author is exploring and experimenting in life. 
he decides that he will try pure hedonism. Pleasure for pleasure's sake. And the conclusion? Empty too. It leads to nowhere beyond itself. Beyond the person seeking the pleasure. There may be a satisfaction in the doing of things of aesthetic appreciation, but it's all pretty meaningless and useless under the sun in the long run. It's empty in itself. It's got no lasting meaning. It brings no lasting profit. You leave it to someone else. It's vanity and the chasing after wind. There has been my not-so-quick flick through this theme and key ideas in this book. Let me see if I can draw the threads together for us. Because I think there is something, some positive place to go from here, friends. You'll be glad to know. First, what do we learn from this? Uh, friends, we live in a grossly materialistic world, don't we? And many of us are materialists ourselves. And yet materialism will, not clearly, will clearly not satisfy the cravings of our hearts. I want to tell you that now. If you think it will, come back and tell me in 40 years whether it did. No, and it won't give us meaning, he's saying. Let me put it more crudely even. Wandering around the wonderful shopping plazas of Melbourne or even Singapore or London or New York and spending your money will not sort out your life. It won't give you meaning in life. Browsing the internet with your credit card in hand and purchasing things to put in your cave or to fill your nest will not give you meaning in life either. And the answer is not some sort of pious anti-materialism that withdraws from society. The answer is not to say, ah, oh, it's all corrupt. I'll put it aside, withdraw, grow my, my own and live a simple life. It doesn't work either. Our writer won't have anything to do with this. Nor will he have anything to do with the hatred of the world that shows itself in asceticism and total denial of the good things that God has put into the world. And he has. He has. No, God created the world good. Please hear this. God created the world good. And the good things he put in the world can be enjoyed by the believer in God. Various Christians throughout history have tried to say no to that, but they're wrong. They're wrong. And our writer knows it. He doesn't spell out as fully as other places in Scripture, but he does hint at it. The answer to a materialistic world is what? Gratitude and trust. It's thankfulness to God who gives such a beautiful world. We're full of good things. It's a realisation that good things need balance though and a recognition that good things are from a good God. Friends, that's why sex in the Bible is not bad. And for those of you who don't know, there's, there's one book in the Bible that's just about sex. <laughs> sex is good. Sex is good in its right context and used properly. And what's more, alcohol's not bad either. Alcohol's okay in right balance and a right context. Friends, I've listed in our outline some of the passages to read on materialism 
Let me encourage you to read them later on. My next heading in your notes is other references and I give these to you because they present God's way. God created this world good. Please never let people undermine that. God created this world good. He created us a place for us to enjoy and for us to enjoy each other. Therefore, there's no guilt in work. There's there's no guilt in sex in its proper place, God-ordained place, in pleasure, in money, and in life in general. No, God wants us to enjoy this world, this good world that he has made. There's gratitude instead. There's a realisation, though, that these activities that God has given us, these good things, have God-given boundaries as well. And there's a realisation that these things will never in the end finally satisfy or give us meaning. No. By all means, enjoy. But they won't give meaning in themselves. Now let's turn to the concept of true profit. And I'm nearing the end, you'll be glad to hear. You see, in my view, Ecclesiastes helps us understand Jesus better. Listen to him. Jesus says, for what does it benefit someone to gain the world but to lose their life? What can anyone give in exchange for their life? That's Mark 8, 36 to 37. Here's another one. For whoever wants save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life because of me will find it that's the words of Jesus the Christ listen to it again for whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life because of me will save it he is promising the one good thing from the one good person can you hear Ecclesiastes and the Lord Jesus tell us to be realistic. Look at life. Look honestly. Look brutally if you have to. But look at life and what it offers realistically. Nothing on offer will last. It will go to the grave. And if you go to the grave with it but without God, you you will have lost everything. Everything. Listen to the voice of this great Old Testament wise man. Listen to the voice of the Lord Jesus. Whatever it profits a man. Listen to him be realistic. And he's saying be realistic, don't fudge. Life in itself has a limited amount to offer you. And it has nothing to offer you that will last. Now, I do have uh, two more pages left in my notes, which is not much because it's very large print. So hang on in there. Friends, our wise friend has made it crystal clear for us. There's no future in being a workaholic. Remember chapters 2, verses 18 to 23, chapter 4 and so on. If you become a workaholic, all you'll do is 
worry. Your life will be full of pain and stress. Your mind will never rest. Possibly your marriage will break up. Maybe your kids will hate you because you're never around for them. And then you die of a heart attack. And you don't leave anything. (laughs) Even your reputation is gone within a few weeks or days or years and 20 years later no one may even remember your name. This word here for hedonists is too, isn't it? Hedonists, if you prefer, who think that life is about pleasure. Our wise friend tells us there's no future in hedonism. You may enjoy parts of life, but again, death hangs over it. And hedonism leaves you nothing at the end of the day but itself, a buzz, a pleasurable feeling or two, and then death. But what about wisdom? What about wisdom? What does our wise friend and teacher have to say here? Here's a man of wisdom I need to tell you. Well, he acknowledges wisdom is better. By the way, wisdom in the Old Testament is putting God in perspective as well. It's not just about general wisdom. It's about putting God in perspective as well. However, wisdom does bring a burden and the wise and the fool die alike. Who will remember that you are wise and not foolish? The same people will be at your funeral and the same people will say nice things about you. Friends, if you're Christian here tonight, if you're brothers and sisters in Christ, please, I solidly and seriously urge you to listen to this writer. He is dark and I I felt for you as you studied his works over these past few weeks. But I want to tell you, he's on the side of the light. He knows life. He knows reality and he's not hiding it from you. So listen in. As we press on in Ecclesiastes, I think we've got one week left, we're going to continue to explore his world and ours. And the good news is we will find some positive conclusions that we can learn from in his ruthless exploration. Yes, he is painfully ruthless, but yes, he can point us forward and when he points us forward he points us in the right direction and Jesus will be where he points us he can point us forward and as we see what he tells us we can build more on the difference that Jesus makes for Jesus makes a world of difference an enormous world. Yes, yes, sin in the garden did damage to our world. But yes, the incarnation, God becoming human and entering the world as one of us turns the tide. Particularly when he puts his own life on the cross for us when he dies for us when he exercises atonement for us that turns the tide on everything so friends hang in there (laughs) 
This was the hardest one of the lot for me to preach. It's the hardest one for you to listen to because I have been tough. I think because our writer is tough. Keep coming and listening to his words for we will get there and next week's the time to come. Okay, so let's pray. Our Father, we, as so often in life, we don't find truth always helpful. And yet we know you want what is best for us. So we thank you for this book and this king. But Father, we thank you more for the great King Jesus and for his work on the cross and his work when he became human and experienced our world. So Father, please help us as we continue to learn and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.